Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. It's been said that all roads lead to God. And this makes a certain amount of sense. In life, there are a thousand different ways to get where we're going. Winding scenic paths, wide, fast highways. We can walk or ride, drive or fly. Wrong turns and detours may slow us down, but sooner or later we make it. We get where we want to go. Could it not be the same for our souls? We all search for meaning, for fulfillment, for purpose, for God. But we come from different places, we're different people, and we don't all travel the same roads. But surely, if we try our best, if we follow our heart, if we believe in ourselves, we'll make it. Everything will work out. We will find salvation in the end. there is a flaw in this way of thinking. The path to God is no road at all. It is a person. His name is Jesus. And salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No matter the road we choose, at the end of this journey that we call life, there stands a gate shut fast. It is not opened for good people. It will not budge for those who lived right or loved well or did great deeds. It will only open for those who put their faith in the Son of God. Those who in life called upon the name of Jesus and believed him when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to open with me to the book of Jude. It's a one chapter book, very close to the end. And if you don't have a physical copy of the word of God, maybe you want to turn there on a device or just follow along on the screens. But we are week two in the midst of this really incredible study on a really fascinating book of the Bible. And today we are talking about one big idea as we study two verses together, and that is this, define the fight. We are working with this understanding that you will never win the fight until you can truly define the fight. So we're going to dig into that today, um, and I'm super excited. Uh, As we get started, I just want to pull the audience, and really I'm just opening up a time for myself to vent because I need to be heard today. Has anyone ever experienced irrational anger? Like maybe some of you join me, others of you are more sanctified or just don't want to answer. If you have never experienced irrational anger, then you have never owned a printer. 
Um, I'm not trying to speak to a universally funny experience, but um, yeah, I've just been having printer wars lately. A lot of printers are made by the company HP, and I think that stands for Hell's Playground. I think that all printers are serviced by an uh, IT department in Hades. Um, in the Middle Ages, they used terrible torture devices, but in modern times, we have toner cartridges. I don't know what toner is, but it's always low. Um, I just feel like as a society, we can place human beings on the moon. We can take this speaker and my daughter can speak to the speaker and play whatever song she wants by saying, hey Alexa. And yet a printer has one job and does it rarely do that job? No, almost never. Um, yeah, the other day I was trying to print something off for this church service and I found myself physically smacking the printer. And in moments like that, you realize, this is not the person I want to be. How did I get to this spot? Uh, but it illustrated for me this powerful idea that we often spend time and energy and emotion engaging the wrong battles. And how much life do we waste when we are doing that? Today we are going to see from the scriptures that we have a true, genuine fight to engage in. And if we're going to win, it might take about all we have to give. But we have been guaranteed through Jesus Christ victory. But every day the battle is ours. But we will never win that fight until we can really define it. So let's dive into the scriptures and then we're going to unpack some biblical training from this, just some biblical teaching, and then see some applications for our own lives. Let's look together what the scripture says, beginning in the book of Jude, verse 3. The author writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. We just pause and reflect on the fact that before we were born, we were loved. That before we were named, we were wanted. That before we begin to understand our own lives, God, you had a perfect and beautiful will for us. And throughout all of that time, through all of our mistakes, there was a redemption rooted in Jesus, in your character, in your work on the cross, in your victory over death. Today we are united by our lives being astounded by who you are. Jesus, would you meet us here by your Holy Spirit? Teach us what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. We began last week talking about the fact that Jude was unique in history. He had a very unique relationship to Jesus. And we said, if you've ever felt like you've had a complicated story with Jesus, then Jude knows exactly how you feel. Because Jude was not just an apostle and a follower of the faith, but he was born as a half-brother of Jesus Christ. They had the same mom in Mary. So Jude grew up with Jesus, and even to the point of uh, Jesus's ministry, Jude was not a believer. Even watching his brother perform miracles and hearing the stories and watching the crowds follow him, even at the moment of Jesus's crucifixion, Jude was nowhere to be found. So it's so amazing now that we find this man named Jude, who's a follower of Jesus, willing to risk it all. And at this point in Christian history, uh, the following people have been killed for their faith. Peter, has been crucified upside down. 
Paul has been beheaded. James, Jude's own brother, was a respected pastor in early Jerusalem, had already been murdered for his faith. So Jude was watching this precious message, this incredible, life-changing salvation, this glorious hope. He was watching it become under siege every day. But it wasn't the outward threats Jude was concerned about. It was something else. It was a villain, a person, or a group of people, rather, that we see exposed in the text today. At this moment, we know that the faith Christianity was very young. And Jude operates kind of like this perfect short film. This past Monday, I met together with this great team, a teaching team, and we read the whole book of Jude together. And we began to see, like, as this thematic construction, this beautiful work of literature, this incredible letter, we see this gorgeous arc. We see drama and intrigue. We see stakes. And then by the end of the book, we have this perfect resolution and final admonition. And so that's why uh, we're going to be studying this over the next few weeks. And But bit by bit, we're going to be walking through it. Um, Jude, we see in the beginning of the verse today, in verse 3, is very conflicted about writing this passage. Um, I don't know if uh, you're a person of peace or a person who loves a good fight. I grew up with a parent of both uh, influences. Uh, my dad was a good peacemaker. He only liked to yell at football games on TV. And uh, growing up, my mom um, was just, we'll just say she was a spicy Southern woman, and she loves that label more than anyone. Um, Jude seems like a peacemaker in this passage. He begins the letter by saying, I did not want to start this letter this way. I did not come today to fight. I really wanted to come with hope and celebration and good news. Like, I wanted this to be the coffee date where we're just able to nod along and agree with each other. However, I have to engage. I have to speak up. I believe that Jude is so conflicted about writing this um, because of the great threats the faith was facing. But according to Jude, this was always a message worth fighting for. As we just mentioned a moment ago, a deadly threat was creeping in. And we're going to see over the next few weeks the danger, the enemy, the stakes, and the hero. But as we said earlier, you will never win the fight until you can define the fight. So let's take a look deeper into the scripture to see what Jude is saying. The first thing that we see, if you're taking notes, is this. That we have to face the fight. If we're going to win, we have to come to terms with what the real fight is. So let's take a look back at verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend or to fight for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So what we see here is Jude recognizing the fact that in life we cannot be passive. We can't be neutral. Jude is owning up to the fact that the fight is all around us all of the time. I uh, would look back to history at certain points, and um, there's stories that often compel me. There's one piece of our common history that the most movies are made about, and it's because it was such a fraughtful time, and it has to do with World War II. So World War II, we constantly have movies. It seems like every year at the Oscars, another movie is made about this gripping time in world history and also American history. And one of the pieces that we are always captured by is how reluctant people were to enter into the battle. 
Uh, they always wanted to see this as someone else's war. This is just a conflict going on in Europe until the war and the carnage and the chaos got brought to our shores. And finally, we realized we couldn't be patient or passive anymore. We, together, as believers in Christ, look out into a world that's constantly ravaged by sin, ravaged by evil, where people are hurt every day. And if we're not careful, we might just assume that is someone else's problem. But the scriptures teach us that if this grace, this common salvation, this declaration of who Jesus is, if this is the crux of all good things, if this is the rescue mission that could change the world, that could save people from their sins, give them hope for a future, if that is a glorious hope and we see it under siege, then you and I have a place to play in this story. And what we see from Jude is even when we are reluctant, if we are going to be obedient, then when we see the fight on our shores, we have to face the fight. And we face it with courage. Not that we're picking fights on social media. We have to pick the right fight, and that's the second thing that we see. We have to choose the right fight. Jude says, again, let's just reread it. I found it necessary. I found it necessary, not that I wanted to, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We said earlier that we waste so much energy fighting the wrong things, but Jude is beginning to expose to us that in all of this, there is a real enemy. The true enemy that we face, he prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. It's Satan. We all agree on that, most of us do anyway. We agree that Satan is the bad guy, but we disagree on what form he takes and where he's working and where he is the most dangerous. Jude begins to point out that the struggle is real in verse four. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If we could keep this up on the streets for just a moment, we have so much to unpack here. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the stakes of this battle. Jude is going to use some of the most bold, beautiful literature to describe how dangerous of a threat these people are. I call them the creepers. These are people who have crept in unnoticed. And as you continue to read this and the stakes and the danger and all of the powerful language that Jude uses, you find yourself wondering, like, what have these people done? What is so evil? What is so crazy? What is so dangerous? If you're anything like me, like, I like to imagine, like, the, the threat out there is foreign and scary and it's the unseen boogeyman right the thing in the shadows is always the scariest jude said no the real danger for just living faith the real danger for us for us as a body of believers for the global church the real danger is when we allow people to creep in and begin to shift the message of jesus christ to take away the potency of what Christ gave us. The people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If you were to really describe the people that Jude is talking about, it's simply this. 
The greatest danger are people who claim the name of Christianity, but they deny that Jesus is the only true power, and they deny the fact that you can believe in him. Well, they say that you can believe in him without your life being transformed to look like him. That's pretty much it. There were people who said, oh, I believe that Jesus is great, but he's not God. I believe in Jesus, but at the same time, like, we all have grace. Nobody's perfect. We can kind of do what we want. And Jude said, wow, I'm not saying that you have to earn your salvation through your works, but a living faith results in changed lives. And you have people creeping in amongst you with this false teaching that it is okay to take half of Jesus, the part that you want, and leave the rest on the side. He said, if that's coming amongst you, if that is creeping into your thoughts, nothing could be more dangerous than to root that out. The most dangerous lie is a slightly twisted truth. And Jude spares no expense to attack this way of thinking. As I begin reading this this week, as I begin reading the entire book, this one chapter book, I began to be so convicted in my own heart and life about where I have allowed these areas of unbelief to creep in and how refreshing, though it can be difficult, how refreshing and beautiful it is to allow Jesus to bring purity to this faith that he has given. The deadliest lies are slightly twisted truths, and we don't always buy into this, but um, I think that Tylenol is something that is good. It can bring great relief, yes, right? In the wrong dose, it can be deadly. A couple of years ago, I was listening to an NPR podcast on just the number of incidences that the wrong dose of Tylenol, how surprisingly lethal it can be, so be careful. Check your dosage when you take your Tylenol. And I think that measure of teaching, like there are some of these truths that are good, but in the wrong measure, with the wrong emphasis, they can be so dangerous. It's so important that we are always allowing Jesus to define this truth for us. I was having a gospel conversation with a good friend of mine this week, and we were wrestling over this very issue, the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Uh, this person was really excited about a new apartment they're getting, and we're like high-fiving because I'm excited for them. And I said, if we we're really to describe faith in Jesus, it's something like this. Like, you're pumped about your apartment. It's going to be so exciting. But what if uh, God came to you and said, I know you're excited about your apartment, and it's a cool apartment, but I have something better for you. I have this mansion, and it's up in the hills and it's beautiful, it has eight bedrooms, bathrooms, the taxes are gonna be paid for, um, it's got central air, it's got cable, it's got Wi-Fi, it's like a gig speed internet. It's amazing, everything beyond you can imagine. All you have to do is to give up the apartment that you've seen for this place I'm telling you about. And he's like, whoa, okay, I see where you're going with this. I'm like, what would it take like, what would it take for you to make that trade? And, like, what would, what would we want to do in that circumstance? Like, let me go check this place out. Could I go to the open house first? Could I go and make sure that it's really there? No. No, you just have to believe. Like, right here in this moment. You have to throw away the apartment keys to the old place, and you've got to trust that I've got a better place for you. And when we boil it down, I mean, that is the invitation to the gospel, isn't it? And what would it take to make that trade? Who would you have to trust? 
the person making the offer. At the end of the day, that's what it looks like to fully trust Jesus. You would have to believe some really big things about the person making that offer. Number one, that he has the power to make that claim. And number two, he has the goodness to give that gift. Essentially, both of the issues here are an assault on one or two of those things about Jesus. That number one, we are calling into question his power, that he is our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And if not that, then we are calling into question his goodness because we have this deep assumption that we know better than Jesus knows. That if he is calling us to righteousness, there is still a sinful place in our hearts that believes that righteousness is less than what the world can offer. And so our flesh desires to have it both ways. My friend and I were talking about in our extended metaphor of the apartment versus the mansion. What do most of us want to do? Well, I'm going to keep the lease on the apartment just to make sure. And, uh, but with the other hand, hold out my hands for the mansion. And the great apostasy, the lie, here's the lie that Judah's attacking. The lie is that you can have it both ways. That was never the offer. That was never the offer. Apostasy, twisting Christianity to be something other than what Jesus says. And this is a deep and difficult teaching when it comes down to it. We live in a pluralistic age. I can't tell you how many people I've met who like Jesus. They like him as a friend. I can't even tell you how many people I've met that love Jesus. That's not the issue. In fact, when we do surveys in Portland, I think less than 10% of people have a negative view of Jesus. Most people really like Jesus on their terms. And Jude says, nothing could be more dangerous. Nothing could be more dangerous. This is a gospel worth defending. If anybody had a complicated relationship with Jesus, it was Jude. And yet he saw something that transformed him. So just because you can't go to the mansion, just because you can't go into the kingdom of heaven, the physical place, it doesn't mean that you can't start tasting its goodness now. The Bible says to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who trusts in him. The gospel is intrinsically good and worth pursuing, worth giving everything for. And until you believe that, the Bible would have us question whether or not we really found it. Jesus himself says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so here is our gospel. It is not just to make people more religious. No, it is not just to take bad people and make them a little bit better. No, that is not the glory. That is not the goodness. The promise of the gospel is Jesus has come to raise dead people to life. At Spring of Life, we have a core value of truth. And one thing that we often say is this, is truth is not just a set of facts to memorize. Truth is a person who can be known. So as we start talking about the exclusivity of Jesus, we have to start asking, why does he demand that we believe him and him alone? Why does he demand that we forsake all other beliefs? Why does he demand that we give up our claim on the old life and follow him and him alone? Why? Why? 
I think the more we understand Jesus, the better we understand this idea. Because as we see Jesus, we see that it's based in his singular power. There's no one with the power of Jesus. There is no other who spoke and the stars were created. The Bible says in John 1 that through him all things were made, that through Jesus nothing was made that has not been made, but through Jesus. He is the one with singular power, but not just that. If that was enough, that would be enough to worship. But the story goes on because he is the one who demonstrated extraordinary sacrifice. At the cross, you have this incredible climax of human history. That God became human and dwelt among us. Not just that he would come near, that he could be known, Emmanuel, God with us. And if that's all he did, that would be enough to lay down our lives. But the story gets more extreme. The story gets more incredible because that very one, the one who knew no sin, marched to the cross, stretched out his arms to pay the blood sacrifice for people just like you and me. That the anger of God was rested upon the shoulders of Jesus so that you and I could know his peace. So not only in Jesus do we have the singular power and the extraordinary sacrifice, whew, we have unprecedented victory. Unprecedented victory. When Jesus rose from the grave, he broke the chains of sin and death once and for all. So that in Jesus... It is possible to know failure, but you will never know defeat because your victory is sealed with a promise and the perfect work. So the, the singular power, the extraordinary sacrifice, the unprecedented victory, that all adds up to the exclusive way. No other person has accomplished all three. And that is why Jesus and Jesus alone, with grace in his heart, with love in his eyes, but as a guardian of the standard, says this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? There have been other good teachers. There have been other good people, but we needed more than good. We needed God himself. The third principle we see in all of this is you have to fight with real power. You have to fight with real power. I think this is something that the church is grappling with all the time. What does real power look like? I was just listening to a podcast this morning on the way to church about how um, Christians should be engaged citizens, but sometimes we overplay our hand in politics. And the interviewer was saying, why do you think people do that? And he said, well, I think some people really do it because they feel like it's a great thing to do, to be engaged. That's great. He goes, but some people just do it because they like power. Because we as people have a complicated relationship to power. And I think it's so important that when we talk about defending the faith, we do it with a real sense of power. And by the way, sometimes that looks upside down to the way the world would see it. That in sacrifice and surrender, that through meekness and service, we find this uh, disassociating power that shakes up the very foundation of this kingdom and gives us a place to fight like never before. Fight with real power. Jude kind of refers back to that in verse 4 when he talks about our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude would tell you. In fact, Jude does tell us 
that he rests all authority and on all power, not through who he is, but through who Jesus is within him, who Jesus is through him. I think there's so many scriptures that point out what our job is and is not. Proverbs 16 says, the preparation of the heart belongs to us, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, that the more we know Jesus, the more we allow him and him alone to define our lives, the more when it comes to defending him, he will give us the power. The beautiful thing we see in scripture is that for us, the real battle is believing, believing he's enough, believing he is changing us, believing we in him can be transformed, believing he can rescue this world, believing he still has a plan for those around us, believing that he can transform us in righteousness, believing he can bring healing to that place in our hearts that we have long ago forgotten and forsaken, believing there is a hope for redemption and resurrection and renewal. The battle is believing. Romans 15, 13 says that. The author writes, may the hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. One thing I'm always aware of is that when we come together, we have a lot in common, this beautiful salvation in Jesus, the center point of our faith. But I also know that we come with varied backgrounds that maybe this was a great week for some of us, but some of us are facing real battles in life. And I think that it's so important just to take a break and say, where are you spending your time? And where are you spending your energy? Because while this is a text directly talking about defending the faith from apostasy and unbelief, that there are other more practical versions of apostasy in our heart, right? Like when we try to take on the battle of our own redemption, our own sanctification, Maybe some of us are locked in a battle that just really doesn't matter. I had another friend call me this week about how to respond in a conflict with someone. And uh, we just were able to talk through that and, and to zoom out for a moment to see like what the bigger battle is, like what the real stakes of the moment are. And, and there's such beauty in having perspective. <laughs> I wonder if there's a battle that you're facing this week that is not yours to fight. And today is a day of just giving it back to Jesus. I'm not strong enough for this. I need you. The greatest battle that we face is believing. Because when we believe Jesus is enough, when we give ownership of our struggles back to him, the Bible says that we have access to the spirit of power within us. To be filled with him is the source of joy and peace. And when we live that way, we are living this true faith. We are seeing the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in him, we have victory. Next week, I can't wait to get into the stakes to continue fleshing out this book. I encourage you to, in your own personal study, take a look at this as we keep unpacking it together. But let me just do something. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment as our musicians come forward? I want to provide some space in here just for you to be heard by God. <coughs> Is there a battle that you're engaged in right now? Maybe it is a broken heart for a loved one. Maybe it is just the sticky sin that is so reoccurring and you're weary and you're tired. 
Maybe it's just something in your heart with your emotions. It's this area of self-doubt or heaviness. Maybe it's conflict with somebody else. What does it look like to really define the fight? Because if we don't, we always find ourselves fighting the wrong battles, wasting energy. Jesus is inviting us and calling us to once again believe deeply. Believe deeply in who he really is. In just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to receive communion together. To join with a global church all over the world that remembers what Christ has done by receiving the elements. And so in just a moment, as the Holy Spirit leads, you can make your way to our family table in the lobby. And as we take the bread, we remember his body was broken for us, that we might find healing. As we dip the bread into the juice, we remember that we are baptized into this faith by the cleansing of his blood, blood that was shed to wash us as clean as snow. And we do this, as scripture says, in remembrance of him, to strengthen our belief. Let's just spend a moment with God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond to him together. Jesus, we thank you for this finished work, that we have a faith worth defending. God, forgive us for those areas where we fight the wrong battle and waste energy. Let us remember today that the battle belongs to you that you have won the victory. And God, we need to see that in practical ways. And so we appeal to you to sanctify us, sanctify our vision. Help us see where you are working. And Jesus, let us surrender. Help us to believe at deeper levels today that your grace is enough, not just for our salvation, but for everyday life. That your grace is enough to defend this faith. Thank you, Jesus, for the power you have given through this grace and gospel. Walk with us today in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. As the Spirit leads, we'll respond in worship and receive communion together. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.